Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We are excited that you came across this message. This sermon you are about to listen to is from our study through the New Testament book of James. If you are joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say welcome to Hope Church. Do us a favor and text NEW TO HOPE to 94090. After you hit send, you'll get an immediate response from our team with a link to a short form that you will fill out so that we can get to know you better. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thank you for joining us today. Enjoy the sermon. This weekend marks the beginning of a celebration that literally takes place all over the world. This weekend begins what we refer to as Christians as Passion Week. It's a week that is set aside to celebrate all that led up to and culminated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A great place to go in the scriptures if you want a good practice for this upcoming week as you prepare to to finish next week's celebration by celebrating Easter is to take the gospel of Matthew and start in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 begins Passion Week. It's the, what's called the triumphal entry when Jesus comes into Jerusalem for that last time. And there in Jerusalem, the crowds begin the week by celebrating Jesus. As he comes in on the back of that donkey, they, they gather palm branches and they line the streets, ushering Jesus into Jerusalem, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But you know, as you read on through Matthew chapter 21 to the end of the chapter, the tone of the week begins to change. As Jesus moves through what we call Passion Week, the final week of his physical life on earth, you can read Matthew 21 all the way to Matthew 28 next week, and you can actually read a chapter almost a day and walk through Passion Week. And I encourage you in your God time, your time alone with the Lord next week, to start in Matthew 21 and just kind of read your way day by day through the final week of Jesus' life. He moves from Palm Sunday into the celebration of the Passover with his followers, his disciples, and what we call that scene in the upper room where Jesus institutes what's become known as the Last Supper that we now call the Lord's Supper or Communion. And in a little bit, I'm going to unpack that a little bit more because at the end of our service today, we're going to be together for the very first time in this new worship center celebrating communion or the Lord's Supper together. But Jesus instituted this practice in the final week of his physical life on earth and during Passion Week. And after instituting the Lord's Supper with his disciples by unpacking the bread and the cup, Jesus then moves his disciples out into a garden where he begins to pray and talk to the father and out there it's in the garden where Jesus is betrayed by Judas and then arrested and then run through a series of mock trials and then they literally beat Jesus almost to death in the public square then they sentence him to be crucified and as you get to Matthew chapter 27 you read about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ how he took all of our sin on himself and on the cross Jesus died in our place. But then you get to Matthew chapter 28. Amen. 
He didn't stay dead. When they show up at the tomb where they buried Jesus, the angel greets those who arrive at the tomb and say, hey, I know you've come here looking for Jesus, but you need to understand something. He is not here. He is risen just like he said. I don't know about you, but I'm glad today that we've come into this place not to celebrate a dead God, but we've come into this place to serve serve and worship a living Savior. Amen? During that week, There was another event that took place. It's found in Matthew chapter 27. It's it's actually a series of events that took place that I believe are often very misunderstood. If you have your Bible, I want you to take it and open it to Matthew chapter 27. As our team prayed and thought about, man, this is our first Easter our first Passion Week together in this new worship center. This is our first time to take communion, the Lord's Supper, together in this new place. Where do we want to come from in God's Word? And a couple of members of our team really challenged me to pray about going back to a passage of Scripture that I preached here a few years ago and reminding us of the truths of this Scripture. And that's what I want to do this weekend. So we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 27, looking at verse number 45. We'll read on down to verse 54. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And then some things began to happen that are somewhat unusual. It says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Important detail here. From top to bottom. And the earth shook. And the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Some very unique circumstances happen in the section of Scripture that I've just read for us this weekend. It's actually three very defining moments in this final week of the life of Jesus on earth. There there are events that appear to be strange and mysterious and almost out of place. They appear to be random disconnected events. 
But what I want to do from this passage of Scripture is walk through it and try to show you how all of these things really fit together. And in doing so, I believe they give us clear understanding of the practical implications of the gospel. Now, I understand that in a room like this and specifically with those that are watching online, that, that there are some of you that are here, you're already Christians, you're followers of Jesus. Some of you have leaned in online and you already know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And what my prayer for you is this weekend is that as we unpack these verses and look at the, the, the truths that these three unique situations teach us, we'll be reminded of the practical implications of the gospel in our lives. And as we come together around the Lord's table to remember his death, Death and to celebrate his resurrection, we'll do so in a renewed spirit of worship, being reminded about the reality of the gospel. But I also know that there are some of you in the room, some online, who are not yet followers of Jesus. You're listening or you're here because somebody said, hey, you ought to go watch this, or hey, you ought to come to our church. You need to visit with me and see what's going on. And here's my prayer for you is that in looking at the the significance of these events, maybe for the first time you'll be able to connect the dots between the historical reality of the suffering of Jesus and the practical implications that that has in your life today in 2021. So we're going to unpack these in three defining moments. And let me go ahead and say up front, the first two of these are somewhat heavy, all right? But hang on to the end, okay? It's going to be a little heavy up front, but I promise you we're going somewhere, and some of you are going to see this passage of Scripture like you've never seen it before, and you'll never see it the same way again. So if you're with me, say amen. Here's the first defining moment. There was an unusual darkness. This passage opens by saying from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Now, in the Hebrew reckoning of time, the sixth hour to the ninth hour would have been noon, 12 o'clock noon, until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So we're talking about the middle of the day. We're also talking about that time of day when the sun is at its peak. Between 12 o'clock noon and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the sun is at its brightest. It's doing its thing with all its power and glory. And yet the Bible says in that moment... The land, which is a word that can mean region or it can mean the entire world, depending on the context. The Bible says that the world, this region, this land was covered in darkness. The way Luke writes about it, Luke in Luke chapter 24 says that there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Listen to what he said, while the sun's light failed. The word failed is a Greek word that literally means to cease or to stop. Here's what's happening. For three hours on the afternoon when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God turned out the lights. The sun that had been doing its job since Genesis 1-1, when God said, let there be light, that very sun on this afternoon didn't show up for, for, its, for its job. It was turned off. It went dark. 
Now, a lot of people have tried to explain it away and say, well, what actually happened there was just a dust storm or what happened there was an eclipse because the word that, uh, that Luke uses to talk about the sun ceasing or stopping is the Greek word eclipsis. Some people think as we've transliterated that word into English that what was happening here was an eclipse of the sun. But let me tell you why it wasn't an eclipse. Because what's happening during the Passion Week is they're celebrating Passover. Passover always happened during the season of the full moon. The full moon. Eclipse of the sun can only occur during the new moon. Now, you know what an eclipse is. It's when the moon moves in between the earth and the sun. And for a brief moment, for a few seconds, there's darkness in that area where the eclipse is happening. Eclipses, those who study this kind of stuff at NASA tell us that eclipses can only happen at the new moon. During the lunar phase of the full moon, the moon is at its farthest point from the sun in the entire calendar year. So what happened here was not an eclipse of the sun. Then, Pastor, what happened here? Here's what happened here. God himself turned out the lights. Why? It was a supernatural event in which God veiled our ability to watch with human eyes what was happening on the cross. The darkness was a visible sign that God the Father had turned his back on God the Son and was pouring out his immense judgment for the sin of the world on his sinless Son. You see, what happened on the cross is Jesus took all the sin of the world, all of your sin, all of my sin, but the scripture says not for ours only, but also for those of the, the whole world. Jesus took all of our sin on himself, every lustful thought, every lying word, every wrong attitude, everything we've ever done, past, present, and future. And you say, wait a minute, you're talking about sins I hadn't even committed yet? Has it dawned on you that every sin you've committed was in the future when Jesus was on the cross? All sin, past, present, and future, Jesus took on himself. Listen to the way Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for our sake, look at this, for our sake, he made him, God made Jesus to be sin. He didn't just take sin on himself. Jesus, the sinless, perfect, holy son of God, literally became sin for us on the cross. And in that moment, God the Father turned his back on God the Son. And God the Father poured out his judgment against sin on Jesus. All of the wrath of God against sin, all of the judgment of God against sin was poured out. He said he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. David Skinner, my seminary professor, when I was taking Hebrew, said this. What transpired between God the Father and God the Son during those three hours of darkness was not intended for fallen man to see. Jesus was being judged for the sins of fallen man. 
And God didn't design it for us to put our eye on that, so he turned out the lights. And the darkness was so dark. The word darkness that's used here describes the kind of darkness that you can feel. It was a darkness that was so dark you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was dark. There was an unusual darkness. Second thing that happened here. There was an unexpected question. Try to imagine with me a scene. Jesus on the cross. People mocking. People making fun. And at a moment, it just gets dark. In the middle of the day. Not when it's supposed to be dark. Nobody's expecting darkness. It's dark. And it's so dark, you can't see. In my imagination, for three hours while Jesus is hanging on the cross, everybody's scared silent. Nobody's moving. Nobody's talking. Three hours of darkness where Jesus is suffering in agony, paying for the sin of the world. And all at once, the silence is broken with a cry. Eli! Eli! Lama Sabachthani! My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? Let me be totally honest. There's a lot about that question. We'll never fully understand. We'll never grasp the weight and the gravity of all that was transpiring on the cross on that afternoon. J.C. Ryle said it this way. It would be useless to pretend to fathom all the depth of meaning which these words contain. But there's a couple of things we know for sure. We can't know it all, but I'm going to tell you, the question that Jesus cried out on the cross, that that cry, that unexpected question tells us two things for sure. Number one, it tells us about the horror of sin. You see, we live in a world today where we trivialize sin. We look at sin as a little mistake. We look at sin as a, just a uh-oh that I did, just a, a, little care, a little fault in my character. When the Bible refers to sin and the Bible talks about sin, sin is something that is devastating. In reality, one writer said, think of all the devastation on, in the world that is the result of sin. All the suffering, all the pain, all the agony, all the anguish, all the disease, all the death, all of that came into the world when we chose to sin against God. That's why the... Paul writes it this way in Romans 6. He says the wages of sin is what? Say it out loud. Death. Sin always brings death. It always brings death. I mean, sin brings spiritual death. You see, because you and I have sinned against God, there's nothing we can do to earn a right relationship with God. We're separated from God. The only hope we have of being reconciled to God is somebody step in and do for us what we can't do for ourselves and take care of the sin problem that exists between us and God. 
Sin brings spiritual death. We're all separated from God because of our sin apart from Christ. That's why Jesus stepped in the middle and Jesus took the punishment for our sin on himself and he died. He was paying the penalty that we owed. Spiritual death, but not just spiritual death. Sin brings physical death. I'm not saying that every person who dies dies directly as a result of their own personal sin, but I am saying this. God did not create us to die. God created us to live. Death entered the picture when sin entered the picture. When we as human beings chose to sin against God, that's when the curse of sin came into the world and death became a reality. Now all of us know that someday we're facing death and that's a result of sin. Sin not only brings spiritual death and physical death, sin brings eternal death. See, if you die physically without a relationship with God spiritually, you spend eternity separated from God. You die eternally. When Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was Jesus giving evidence about the horror of sin. What Jesus was experiencing was drinking the cup of the judgment of God against sin. And he was crying out in agony. Jesus was dying physically. Jesus was dying spiritually. For the first time in eternity, there was a rift a separation between God the Father and God the Son as the Father turned his back on the Son and judged sin that was found on him, even though it wasn't his own sin. It was your sin and my sin. Do you know this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus refers to him as God? Every other time Jesus talks to the Father, you know what he calls him? Father. The only place in the New Testament where it's not my Father, it's my God. But he didn't just die spiritually and physically. Jesus died eternally. You know who Jesus is, right? He's God in the flesh. You know what that means? On the cross, God died for us. Why? Because of the horror. Of sin. You see, it was my sin. And it was your sin that motivated Jesus from a heart of love to yield himself, to offer his body as a substitute for us. So when we hear that cry, we're hearing. The horror of sin. But let me tell you what else we're hearing. Here's what else we know for sure this cry tells us. It tells us about the holiness of God. We don't like to talk a lot about the holiness of God today. We want to talk about the love of God. Listen, God is a God of love. Matter of fact, the Bible says God is love. But listen, if you need to understand something, God is loving because God is holy. His love is a manifestation of his Holiness. We want to talk about the the mercy of God, and God is merciful, but God is merciful because He's holy. This passage of Scripture teaches us about the holiness of God. When Jesus cried out, Why have you forsaken me? No one near Him could answer that question. Not even the angels in heaven could fully answer that question. 
But in reality, Jesus gave us the answer in Psalm 22. Did you know when Jesus cried out that question, he was literally quoting the Old Testament? Let me show it to you. Psalm 22, verse 1. Look what it says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? That's the Old Testament, Psalm 22, verse 1. When Jesus cried out on the cross, he was literally quoting the Old Testament psalm. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Here's the answer. Yet you are, say it out loud, holy. A.W. Pink said it this way. God's holy character could do no less than judge sin, even though it be found on Christ himself. At the cross, then God's justice was satisfied and his holiness vindicated. Every one of us in this building and every person watching online will one day stand before God. We'll either stand before God clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ because of his death, burial, and resurrection. He became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. We'll either stand before him clothed in the righteousness of Jesus or we'll stand before him condemned in our own sin. And here's what the cross tells us. If God did not spare his own son, When sin, which did not even belong to him, was found on him, what possible hope could you or I have to stand before him in our own sin and think that somehow God's just going to say, it's all right, you did the best you could. The holiness of God. Then there's the last thing. There were several unexplained events. Now, I know that so far this has been somewhat heavy to talk about this darkness that so cloaked this image on the cross because there was a spiritual, divine, mysterious transaction taking place that was reserved for God the Father and God the Son and no one else to look upon. I know that when we hear the cry of Jesus and realize that what it's teaching us is about the horror of sin and about the holy character of a just God, that that's weighty and it's heavy. But as we get to these several unexplained events, we begin to put the pieces of the puzzle together. After we read Jesus yielding up his spirit, the Bible began to describe these events like a curtain that's torn in two and tombs that begin to be emptied and soldiers who begin to follow Jesus. What in the world does all of this have to do with the gospel? Well, I'm really glad you asked, and to be honest with you, I can't wait to tell you what I'm about to tell you, because if you catch it, you're about to have a moment before the Lord. Did you know that every time Jesus quoted the Old Testament and the New Testament, he always did it in the language of the day, which is the Greek language. 
Every time Jesus quoted the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, in the New Testament, he always did it in the Greek language because he lived in the Roman Empire. The Greek language was the language of the day. There's one exception. The only time Jesus quoted the Old Testament in Hebrew is right here in Matthew 27. He did not quote the Old Testament in the language of the day, the Greek language. He quoted the Old Testament in the original language, Hebrew. That's why when you read it in your Bible, you get to that phrase, and it's not in English because everywhere he spoke in Greek, we have translated into our Bible in English. But when you get to this phrase, you get there, and you're like, what in the world? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Why do you think in this one instance, Jesus quoted the Old Testament in Hebrew? I think it's because he wanted us to know something very specific. Let me try to help you understand it. In the Hebrew language, there are two common interrogatives that are translated into English with the little word, why? My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? The first of those Hebrew interrogatives is the word. I'm going to put it up here for you. It's a Hebrew word, madu'ah. Say that out loud. Madu'ah. You just learned a Hebrew word. Now, if you speak Hebrew, that's my Alabama translation of how you say it, all right? I probably butchered the pronunciation, but just roll with it, all right? Say madu'ah. Madu'ah. It's a Hebrew word that translated into English is translated with the little word, why? When you see the word madu'a in Hebrew, here's what it means. Madu'a always looks backwards after an event and seeks the cause of the action. Now, if that's what Jesus is doing here, my God, my God, why? Madu'a. Jesus is looking at the crucifixion. He's looking at what's happening on the cross and he's saying, God, I don't understand. Would you show me, would you tell me why, God, you're doing this? And that's what a lot of people think he was asking. Maybe that's what you thought he was asking before hearing this. You thought, man, Jesus just had this moment on the cross where he kind of forgot what he was doing and he just cried out, God, what's going on here? But there's another Hebrew interrogative. It's the Hebrew word, lama, also translated why. Lama always looks forward and seeks a demonstration of purpose. Lama is, really could be said like this. What is to be accomplished by this action? Madu'a says, I'm looking back at this and I don't understand why is this happening. Lama says, would you give a demonstration? Would you show everybody else why this is happening? On the cross, Jesus broke through the darkness and he did not say, Eli, Eli, Madua, God, why are you doing this? He said, Eli, Eli, Lama. God, would you give a demonstration of why this is happening? Listen, and as soon as he asks, God begins to answer. 
These three things happen. Let me show you what happened. First of all, the Bible says in verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus said, Father, God, give a demonstration. Show them why. And the Bible says the curtain in the temple was ripped. What is the curtain in the temple? Well, you first need to understand the temple. The temple was made up of a series of courts. So imagine there was a center court right in the middle of the temple, and then all these courts all around the temple, and with every layer of the courts, different people were excluded. For example, the most external court in the temple was the court of women. All Jews, male and female, were allowed into the court of women. So they could all go into the temple. They could all go into the court of women. If you were Jewish, as long as you were male or female, and you were of the Jewish faith, you could come into the court of women. Inside the court of women was called the court of Israel. Only Jewish men were allowed into the court of Israel. Inside the court of Israel was the court of priests. Only the priests of the nation of Israel were allowed inside the court of Israel. Inside the court of Israel, or excuse me, inside the court of priests was what was called the holy place. The holy place only certain Jewish priests were allowed in. The, so you see what's happening. The circle's getting smaller and smaller. First court, court of women, anybody. All Jews, men, women, anybody. Court of Israel, only the men. Court of priests, only the priests. Holy place, only some of the priests. And inside the holy place was the center of the temple called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies represented the presence of God among the people. It's where they kept the Ark of the Covenant. Nobody was allowed inside the Holy of Holies except one person, the high priest. And the high priest was only allowed inside the Holy of Holies one day a year. It was called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest and the high priest alone could go into the Holy of Holies, and he took a blood sacrifice in, and he laid that sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant as a symbol of the Messiah who would one day come and shed his blood on behalf of the people for the forgiveness of sins for the world. It was so holy, get this, they literally would tie a rope around the high priest's leg in case while he was in there, he happened to drop dead, they could drag him out because nobody else could go in. The Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the temple by a curtain. Some call it a veil. The veil or the curtain in the Holy of Holies. Now, when I say curtain or veil, I don't want you to think about some little flimsy. The curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was 60 feet tall. It was 30 feet wide. And it was four 
inches thick. So imagine a phone book, for those of you that remember those ancient relics, imagine a phone book that is 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, blocking the entrance to the Holy of Holies. It was a constant reminder that because of sin, humanity has no access to the presence of God. God is so holy. We are so sinful that we cannot make our own way into the presence of God. (laughs) But then on the cross, Jesus said, my God, Would you show them why? And the Bible says immediately, somebody, I'll tell you who, God himself from top. Listen, nobody grabbed it at the bottom and started so. No, at the top, 60 feet up, it was ripped. God the Father, in response to the cry of Jesus, ripped apart the curtain as a testimony that now you and I have access into the very presence of God himself. Through Jesus, you and I have been welcomed into the presence of God. Then a second thing happened. Verse 52. The tombs also were opened. And many... (laughs) That's an interesting word. Many, not all. Jesus says, Father God, show them why. And after his resurrection, the tombs were opened. Many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Did you hear that? A little mini resurrection. How random. We're talking about people have been dead. They'd already been buried. Funeral's over. People stop bringing casseroles to the house. Dead. Not all of them. Isn't that interesting? Not every believer. Just some of them. Why? Listen, here's what we know from Scripture. All of us are going to die one day. If you didn't know that, welcome to the club. You now know. We're all going to die someday. If you're a follower of Jesus, when you die, the Bible says your soul, your spirit goes immediately into the presence of God because of Jesus. Your physical body gets laid to rest here, either through burial, cremation, whatever. Gets buried here. One day when Jesus comes again, he's going to raise up. Our old dead bodies, he's going to put them back together. He's going to glorify them. Meaning this old temporary earth suit that we're dragging around here now that's getting worse every day, amen? This old temporary earth suit's going to be resurrected. It's going to be glorified, meaning it's going to be equipped for all eternity. He's going to reunite our soul and our body. And for all eternity, we're going to reign with Jesus in our glorified bodies. Get this. Jesus said, God, would you show them why? And guess what happened? He just decided he's going to raise a few of them from the dead, go ahead and gave them their glorified body. They went walking around Jerusalem. Can you imagine? You're at the store. And you're done. Didn't I go to his funeral? 
People say, how do you know that there's a resurrection? How do you know that there's life after death? I'll tell you why. God asked, God asked, or Jesus asked God to prove it, and he did. He raised a few of them from the dead, got their glorified bodies. They're running around in heaven right now with their glorified body. Nobody else got it yet, and they're like, here we are. How'd they get it? Jesus asked. God raised them from the dead, gave them their glorified body. They walked around Jerusalem for a few days and then went to heaven. Third thing happened. Verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place... (laughs) What took place? What took place? The curtain was torn. Dead people came out of the grave, started walking around. They were filled with awe, I guess so, and said, this was truly the Son of God. You got to know who the centurion is. Crucifying Jesus was another day at the office. He'd crucified hundreds of people. He'd put thousands of nails in human flesh and put them on a cross. He'd seen it happen over. It was just another day. He didn't even shed a tear. It was just another day at the office to him. Until Jesus said, God, show them why. The curtain was torn. Some tombs were emptied. And then this old hard-hearted, unbelieving, calloused centurion said, man, there's something different about this guy. He is the Son of God. What did Jesus say when he was alive? He said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men, all people to myself. Jesus said, Father, give a demonstration. Show them why. And what the Father showed us is through Jesus, we now all have access into the presence of God. Through Jesus, we now all can be confident that one day when we die, we'll be resurrected out of that grave and spend eternity with him in heaven. And through Jesus, get this, nobody is outside the power of the gospel to save. Here's a man who literally murdered thousands with his own hands. And in an instant, the gospel changed his life. That's the practical implications of the gospel. Thank you for listening to the Hope Church LV podcast. If you haven't done so already, go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Have a great rest of your day.